Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra for another podcast. This is Calcio Castaways. And I am delighted to say that with me, your host, Richard Hall, it is Luca Hodges Ramon. I've been nagging him to come on this since we came up with the idea. Obviously, anyone who reads the site will know that Luca has been with the site literally since its inception. And it's uh, really good to have him on. So, how are you doing, Luca? You okay? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, like you said, finally managed to get around to doing this. And I'm really looking forward to it, having listened to some of the episodes with the guys. Yeah, no, it's been it's been good. It's been interesting, especially to sort of reminisce in, in these times with lockdowns and everything that's going on. And I would touch base normally and talk about Milan with you, but I'm not going to because you're doing too well. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> but very quickly, I mean, you must be pretty pleased with the way the season's going. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think, um, I guess it, it dovetails nicely into the podcast today, kind of rekindling uh, former memories of, of the past glories with Milan. Um, no, Pioli doing a fantastic job, obviously. Latan um, proving kind of timeless as always and a defying age. And, and yeah, just really exciting times to be a Milan fan at the moment. No, it's been, gotta say, they've been really impressive. I, I thought that, you know, when Ralph Ranjet was supposed to be coming in at the back end of last season and I thought it was a it was a no-brainer and certainly proved me wrong because I think the one thing, we always talk, talk about players uh, sort of improving season on season and really taking that step up and you don't normally talk about coaches doing that and I have to say that I think Pioli, where he was just this sort of safe pair of hands, I think he's really stepped up to the mark. But yeah, well, we shall start this because if anyone doesn't know the format of this, because we've been reminiscing, we look at... Uh, we thought if you were stuck in a desert island and you only had two goals that you could ever watch and one match, which would it be? And if there's a player or manager or coach or someone from Calcio's past that you could watch it with, who who would that be as well? And so Luke has uh, got a, a really good choice here today and really quite looking forward to especially one part of this, which is um, we'll come to later. But first of all, uh, is this an incredible goal uh, by Kaka against Manchester United? Testa alta, arriva anche Sedorf all'inserimento, eccolo, va a cercare Cacca, attenzione Cacca, Rata, Cacca, Cacca, ancora lui, ancora lui, 10 minuti, Milan è già in vantaggio. Che gol, che, che azione, ma qui Sedorf ha fatto una, una cosa straordinaria. So, Luca, this, this goal from Cacca, just, just tell me... Give me a bit of background about the season. What was happening here? What sort of state were Milan in? I mean, everyone remembers Kaka. And then just talk us through what is, quite honestly, a superb goal. Yeah, I think I chose this. And I know, obviously, it's it's not a goal that occurs in Serie A. It's a goal that occurs in the Champions League. And me, as Milan fans, we've almost forgotten what that looks like um, <laughs> over the last decade or so. But... I chose this because it was just a a tie in general over the two legs that really sticks out in the memory. Um, 06-07 season, obviously I won't miss the opportunity to to just um, highlight the fact that Milan went on to win the Champions League that year. Uh, The last time they did so, getting the revenge over Liverpool in Athens. Um, But I think it was this tie against Manchester United um, in the semi-finals that really... I think confirmed Milan as the best team in Europe at the time. Obviously, that was the Manchester United of, of Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, that was uh, a Manchester United that probably you would arguably say, well, no, not arguably, they won, they won the title in, in England that year, were a better side than the Liverpool side who reached the final. Um, yeah. And Milan over two legs, even at Old Trafford, although they lost 3-2, um, I felt took... Man United apart over the two legs um, and Kaka was at his absolute zenith at this time. I mean, when we think of of the of the glory days of Milan, whether it be through the 90s under Saki and Capello, I think you move on to the next kind of era under Ancelotti and one of the names you immediately think of is, is Ricky Kaka. Um, he obviously was undoubtedly probably at this time, especially this season, the best player in the world. Um, a, a player who I think just aesthetically, you could watch clips over of him on YouTube over and over again. Um, the way he glided past players with the ball, the pockets of space he would pick up. 
um, the different kind of goals he could score, whether it was running from the halfway line. I think earlier in the in this Champions League campaign, he scores a fantastic solo goal against Celtic to send Milan through. Um, and there's, there's, I know I'm kind of cheating here, but there's two goals in this in this tie between Milan and Manchester United. The first, obviously, is the solo goal against Manchester United in in at Old Trafford. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone immediately thinks of that goal. Um, but I've actually chosen the goal that set Milan on their way in the return leg um, at San Siro. And the reason for choosing that goal is, is purely for the whole, I guess, why we, me and you, Richard, in particular, fell in love with Italian football. Is it one of those San Siro nights under yep. the lights, Champions League, the, the place is absolutely rocking. Even if you watch the game back on YouTube, you hear the atmosphere and it is deafening. Um, it's actually pouring with rain um, mm. that evening, um, which I think sometimes actually adds a kind of mystique and magic to San Siro when it's a, when it's a rainy night and the mist comes over and you yeah. see the lights as you approach the stadium. And even within the ground, it kind of fogs over sometimes. And you can just imagine that as a pretty daunting prospect for any visiting teams um, when you step out into that arena and, and you have obviously that wall of noise hitting you. I think Alex Ferguson actually spoke about one of the few grounds where he felt the atmosphere has really made a difference. Was wasn't actually this time. I think it was when Milan played United in 2010 or 11 when Ronaldinho was playing for Milan. And Milan scored a really early goal and he, he felt... United actually went on to win the game 3-2, but he felt that first 10, 15 minutes his players were just completely overawed by the whole occasion. Um, but yeah, in, in this game, obviously Milan trailing 3-2, um, needing to turn around a first-leg deficit. And Kaká, again, it maybe wasn't a, a kind of solo goal like the first leg, but... The ball's kind of clipped into, I think it's Seydorf, who knocks it down, makes a run into the box and knocks it down with his head back to Kaká on the edge of the area. And Kaká, who who had this ability also to to make kind of late runs into positions where he just found space and and then was, was clinical. And I think with his left foot volleys the ball from just outside the box into the bottom corner, leaving van der Sar no chance. Um, kind of skids the ball off the wet turf and volleys it into the bottom corner. And I think that that just set Milan on their way. They're going to win the game 3-0. Um, and yeah, like I said, it would have been an easy choice to go for the solo goal, obviously, in, in the first mm. game where he nips it. I think it's between Ever and Einzer, isn't it? With his head, yeah, yeah. sends those two <laughs> clashing into each other. <laughs> makes him look very silly and then just slots it past van der Sar. Um, but I just think the two games overall captured what Kaká was all about at his absolute peak for Milan. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's, like you say, both goals are, are worth watching if you're not seeing them. I mean, like you say, the, would you say it's fair to say that when you look at that team, you know, you've got Gattuso and Ambrosini in that sort of holding role. You've got Perlo as you know, the orchestrator of, of that's when obviously Ancelotti moves him back. You've got those attacking fullbacks. But would you say this whole team is really set up to just support Kaka? Yeah, I think I think it had to be, in a way. I think he'd earned that that right. You know, it's it's sometimes antithesis for Italian coaches to give that that individuality to a player or or that mm. licence to a player. I think you had to give it to Kaka in this Milan team. It actually, and this will kind of lead on nicely to a game we speak about later, reminds me a little bit of what Capello did for Van Basten in a way, um, mm-hmm. to kind of try and reinvigorate Van Basten after Saki leaves. Um, because Saki, obviously, everyone knows, a fantastic coach, but very regimented. And I think Van Basten had began to suffer as a consequence. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Ancelotti looked at it and when you've got what was back then the best player in the world, you have to find a way to allow them to have the freedom of the pitch, really. So Kaka would pick the ball up in Milan's own half, break through the lines by by beating the press, just carrying the ball himself in that kind of languid and elegant way he did when he would eat up ground. 
he would be the playmaker in some ways and, and rotate with the, with a Pirlo, who'd obviously we, we think of as a, a regista, mm. but Kaká could e- easily rotate with Pirlo and drop in deep and orchestrate play. He'd pick up the ball in those um, half spaces, if you like, either as a mezzala, like drifting off the wing or, or, or as a number 10. And as I said, then he'd make those late runs into the box as a number eight. You, you had to allow him to have that freedom to drift around yeah. the pitch, really. And I think, like you say, putting players like Gattuso next to him, Ambrosini, obviously two of the yeah. best midfield destroyers in, in Europe at that point. And they weren't just midfield destroyers. I'm doing them a bit of a disservice there. But <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you put them alongside players like Kaká, and, and players who had the creativity of Pirlo and even Seydorf. Yeah. Because actually, like you said, it was the wing-backs who, who gave Milan that width, Jankolowski, Oddo. Um, Essentially underrated as well, those two wing-backs. Very, yeah, very underrated. I think, obviously, following on from from Maldini and and um, and Cafu, um, who obviously Cafu was still around, but perhaps starting to progress, obviously, into the twilight years. Um, Jan Kalowski and, and Oddo um, did a fantastic job of providing that energy up and down um, and especially given that if you, if you look at the kind of I guess the work rate they would have had to have got through because Milan was still I, I believe in the second league especially and I think they were still only playing a four at the back so you know you're still leaving undoubtedly Nesta one of the greatest centre-backs <laughs> Italy has produced, and I think it was Caladze at the time, potentially quite exposed. Yes, you. you Mal- Maldini go. played centrally quite a bit that season. And well, Maldini played, yeah, exactly. And Maldini could play centrally as well. But, um, you know, you still, obviously, you've got Gattuso and Ambrosini potentially screening, but there was a lot of work to get through. And I think, as you said, they provided that width because when you look at Milan's midfield, actually, it was all players who wanted to come towards the centre of the pitch Pirlo, Seidorf, Ambrosini, Gattuso, even Kaká. He could drift out to the wing, but they were players who operated centrally, really. So mm. it was vital for, for, for players like Jan Kolovsky, Oddo, um, Serginio was still around, obviously, although again, Cafu heading into their twilight years to be able to provide that width. Um, but yeah, that, that's one of my favourite, obviously, growing up, one of my favourite Milan teams to watch between 2003 and 2007, when they reached, obviously, three Champions League finals. Um, some of the football they were playing, I think the midfield was undoubtedly the best midfield in it, Europe, full strength. Yeah, completely. I think it was. And I think a lot of people have memories of, like you say, it's almost peak Kakar that, at that point. I mean, 10 goals in the Champions League, 18 overall that season. I mean, that was when he just felt like he's unstoppable. And uh, yeah. when you talk about the role he had, it actually reminds me of, a, funnily enough, a Milan player, but not when he was at Milan, when he, Rude Hullet went to Sampdoria under Sven Goran mm. Eriksson. And, you know, he had a very rigid formation. He just used to say to Hullet, OK, you play anywhere. And he was mm. literally... I watched this back recently um, on one of the old Sampdoria games. And he, he, it's amazing because he, he, he just fills in at centre-back. Then he wants to play midfield. Next thing, he's just... Most of it, you know, he's, he's completely streaming up front. And that's a very similar role to him. And again, funnily enough, he finished top scorer that season. But uh, talking of... Well, actually, talking of Sampdoria, I'm going to move on to your next goal. Well... Kind of. This is the worst link ever, actually. I thought it was going to be seamless. I was going to Sampdoria <laughs> to Mancini. And then I thought, you know what? This next goal that Mancini scores against Parma is actually when he's playing for, uh, for Lazio. Ancora dalla bandierina, Michailovic, prodezza incredibile di Mancini che gira di tacco in porta il pallone del 2-1. Un colpo davvero magico, come rivediamo, vedete Mancini va incontro al pallone, di tacco lo mette all'incrocio dei pali, nulla da fare per Buffon, Lazio di nuovo in vantaggio, rabbiosamente in avanti il Parma con tutto. So, I mean, I love this, this goal, but I'm going to let you talk about this, uh, because I'll talk a little bit about maybe the season afterwards, but yeah, this, this is a special goal. Yeah, I mean, this goal... I remember when I first saw it, it just, it, it actually blew my mind as a, what I would have been, nine, nine-year-old. Mm. Um, I remember trying to replicate it countless times um, <laughs> in the park, in the garden, getting my dad to feed me balls. Um, just a way, obviously, to give a bit of context, yeah, context, yeah Lazio playing Parma at the Stadio Ennio Tardini. We're talking about 
peak 1990s football Italia years, Palmer in that Eat beautiful, yeah, exactly, beautiful yellow and blue strip that we all associate them with. Um, I think it was, was it the year that they went on to win the UEFA Cup? Um, oh, yes, it was, wasn't it? Uh, it may have, may have been. Um, Last year went on to win the UEFA. Yeah. Cup Winners' Cup. Cup Winners' Cup, yeah. That was yeah, it. At, and then um, I think Palmer won the UEFA. UA. UEFA yeah, Cup with, with that fantastic side. team. Exactly, yeah, with Veron, Crespo, Taram, Cannavaro, Buffon, um, all those players. Yeah, and the Cup Winners' Cup that Lazio won, funny enough, I was at that game at Villa Park against Mallorca. Um, okay. My dad got me, got, I think I must have insisted after watching Mancini's goal that <laughs> I wanted to watch Lazio live. Um and my dad managed to get us tickets because it was at Villa Park in, in England. Um, but yeah, I mean, the goal itself is... Uh, people compare it, obviously, to... I think Zola scored a, a similar goal shortly after for Chelsea against Norwich. Yeah, um, yeah. He kind of croifs the ball in on the volley from a corner. So this goal, Mihailovic taking a corner, um, out foot, out swinger with his left foot. And, and Mancini kind of darts to the near post, um, makes a dart to the near post, and he meets the ball on flush on the volley, which I think makes this goal even more impressive because mm. I think Zola's is a kind of half volley, and don't get me wrong, you normally associate half volleys as being the harder technique, but the fact that Mancini actually back heels this, we're not talking about a Cruyff where you've got a larger surface area of your foot if we're going to get into physics here about um, <laughs> difficulties and techniques of goal but Mancini meets the ball on the volley and as he does so kind of he kind of performs a pirouette a ballet type pirouette so that his back is facing the goal he's actually gone beyond the front post as well so he hasn't got much of an angle to work with pirouettes and meets the ball on the volley with with his back heel literally what looks like his studs mm. as you'd say in, in Italian and flicks the ball, almost like you were flicking it round the corner, flicks the ball on the volley uh, into the near post. I mean, the keeper doesn't even see it, really. The keeper, before he has time to react, it's in the back of the net, and it kind of... And that, yeah, the keeper's the Buffon keeper as well. Yeah, the keeper's Buffon, yeah, it's a good point to make. The keeper's <laughs> Buffon, and it kind of intersects the defender at the front post and Buffon, and nestles into the net. And you see, I think the brilliant bit about this goal is watching the video back, you can see Christian Vieri's reaction. Like, mm. what has he just done? What has Mancini just done? I can't believe... And he's looking at him almost in disbelief, asking him, have you just, have you just pulled that off? <laughs> um, and it's in front of the Lazio, travelling Lazio fans as well. And I think it just... A goal of this quality, it almost, again, is a really good reflection of the of Serie A at the time and what was going on, the number of world-class players. I mean, Mancini, again, you'd say, had his, you'd say, in inverted commas, had his tw- highlight, tw- sorry, best years at, at Sampdoria, winning the title with Sampdoria. But then he goes to Lazio and Sven-Goran Eriksson makes him an integral part of that Lazio yeah. team who, who became the most successful Lazio team in, in history. And, and it was really almost like, yeah, Sven-Goran Eriksson yeah, says, I've got to make this guy the most important player in the yeah. team. And a bit like the Kaka one, essentially mm. give him a, a free roll when he plays. It's true, because you think about this. I mean, Lazio, that season, they finished second. Um, they do win the Cup Winners' Cup. Palmer, by the way, beat Marseille in the UEFA Cup. That's it, look. yeah. 3-0, three, three isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. And, but, you know, the next season, obviously, they go on to, to, to win City uh, A. But this is like the back end of uh, the career when he does this. And, he, you know, because he, he, well, he ultimately retires in 2001 when he has that four-game spell at Leicester, which is probably best forgotten about. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but before that, I mean, this is right at the end. And like you say, the, the likes of Vieri looking around and thinking, wow, how can I emulate that? And Vieri's no, you know, he was, he was some player in that season as well. But I think when you look at that squad um, that Lazio had then, you're right. It probably was one of the best in its history. Um, I know we remember, obviously, very fondly that early 90s side. But still here, you know, the likes of Nedved and Botchik and Stankovic. It's just unbelievable. And mm. even when you look in the bat line, people like Marchigani, to me, is always an underrated goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Marcello, Marcello Salas. I mean, what a player. And yeah, you could, yeah. I think 
was special about this season for for Lazio is you could tell something was was really building and that that's but this goal for me was was unbelievable and I I, I remember this really really well and it was just that sort of that. I think it was because Lazio was such a good team. You had, I mean, your Milan side won the season this season, didn't they? And you had so many good last teams. Day of the season. Yeah, last day of the season again. Went two years in a row, wasn't it? It went down to the last day of the season, I think. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I missed out Lazio's best ever player in that team, Paul Ocon. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Paul, if you managed to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it is, it's an incredible game, an incredible goal. But yeah. I've got to say, I have got to say that talking of there, well, we've talked of Milan, and one game that, one game, I'm so pleased that you you chose. Um, it was one that I remember watching watching live at the time. It was ridiculous. It's one of my favourite ever City games, considering it's Milan. Uh, you know, I'm going to let you go talk about this, but I'll just introduce it as. The headline of the Gazette Dilla Sport was simply Super Hullet, Super Milan. Yeah, I think the game in question is is Fiorentina Milan, 1992-93 season. Um, the final score is beggar's belief. Um, Fiorentina three, Milan seven. Um, the, the disclosure here for people going, hold on a minute, Luca would have been about two or three years old for anyone who knows me when this game was being played. <laughs> My dad bought me again. Well, I must have been about five, six, seven years old. A a videotape of the review of the 1992-1993 season. Um, my dad, being a big Milanista, would try and get hold of any um, any kind of memorabilia that obviously celebrated the the glory days of Sacchi and Capello. And I would watch that video religiously at least two or three times a season. Um, so I kind of know the ins and outs of that season, like the back of my hand, like any other season, like I would know a season from five years back. Um, uh, so it's, 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 it's a season that holds yeah, special significance in my formative footballing life, if you like, even though I was only two or three when it actually, you know, when that it actually must have happened. Had, it must have had such an effect because I do know what you mean, because I had the same experience with Inter in the late 80s, early 90s on B Sky B before the football Italia came out. But if this is your first ever season, well, one of your first memories of, of Milan, I'm just going to do a little bit of context in, because I want you to talk about the Milan squad and then obviously this game. But you yeah. mentioned that this is, so this is the fourth game of the season where Milan have won 7-3 against the Fiorentina side, which we'll talk about more later, who, that's a whole nother story. But yeah. That's a podcast in itself. That's that's itself yeah, it <laughs> just, just to put into context, some of the the second game of the season, Milan beat Pescara five four. The fourth game of the season, you guys beat Fiorentina seven three. The game afterwards, you beat that Lazio side five three, and then I think it's on the tenth game of the season, you go on and hammer Napoli five one. I mean, what's going on? It's just that is that, and this is a. When people were talking about Italian football being very defensive, et cetera, et cetera. But this is peak sort of Saki taking the just saying finish them, isn't it, really? Yeah, it it really is. It really is. I think sorry, no, that's where I, I have to correct you because it this is where the myth I like to dispel the myth about Capello uh, being a defensive coach because this is the Capello years. Oh and, sorry, don't say so. sorry. Yeah, sorry. and that's why every no, but it's true because I think it's People associate that kind of free-scoring Milan side or, or an exciting Milan side with, with Saki. But Capello comes in um, and there's some incredible results. Even in, the, mm. even in the first season, apologies for anyone who can hear the, the office phone going in the background, not just... It's probably Fabio. Up on Capello, yeah, it's probably Saki. Capello saying, <laughs> make sure you give me... Tell Richard Hall to start giving me credit for some of the yeah. for some of the free scoring, free flowing football <laughs> that we played. happened years ago. That is very Capello. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Always a stickler for um, for getting things right. Um, but no, yeah, Capello comes in. Um, Saki, what many people thought would be an impossible job, um, and I think I I wrote an article about it, and I think I phrased it as evolution, not revolution. Because Capello had the 
the bones or the foundations of the best team in Europe. And he knew he didn't really need to change anything. Um, what he did know was that obviously Saki was on the brink of, of, of falling out with, with one of, again, one of the best striker in Europe at the time, Van Basten. And this is what I alluded to earlier. Capello said, we need to make Van Basten an integral part of this team. He's the man who's going to score the goals along with Hullet, Rijkaard uh, and the other. And then obviously build on, on what was, again, the best defensive line in Europe um, with Baresi, Maldini, Costa Corta, um, Tassotti, Etau. You can, you can keep naming them. Um, and he essentially just, I guess, gives, gives these players a freedom to go out um, and express themselves. And even in, I think, the 1991-92 Scudetto season, where they go unbeaten, there's some games where, again, they beat Lazio 6-3, they beat Zeman's Fodger on the last day 8-2 that season, mm-hmm. um, they score 74 goals in the season. And, in, and I think in the, in the season we're speaking about, in 34 games, they score 65. And as you said, in that first 10, 10 games, there's... Four of which, four of which they score five goals or more. So the game against Fiorentina was was really just um, a reflection of what was a free scoring, free flowing Milan side at the time. Um, they just, as you said, had a crazy game against Pescara, um, which in the, on the second day of the season, Pescara had gone to Roma on the first day of the season, one one nil. Um, so shocked everyone, and then after 25 minutes of that game, Pescara find themselves 4-2 up against against an all-conquering Milan side, um, newly promoted Pescara. And funnily enough, one of the scorers that day was um, Massimiliano Allegri for Pescara, who scores in the first minute of that game. Um, so, but yeah, so this was a free-scoring Milan side. They go to Florence against a Fiorentina side who were, you know one of the sides who would become or already considered the seven sisters, if you like, one of the powerhouses in Italian football, um, a hugely talented squad, which you should contained... That, on that, you've got some... I mean, if you go through some of the players in that, that's... I mean, OK, we've got the... You've got to remember the foreigners rule is uh, in place here still, isn't it? It's, um, but what a squad. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that squad, it, it contains the likes of, obviously, Batigol, Batistuta, uh, Brian Laudrup. He's just come um, up the... The European Championships, exactly. Uh, Stefan Effenberg, yeah, yeah. Massimo Orlando, Dunga, um, Baiano, Francesco Baiano, for anyone who remembers him. So a hugely talented Fiorentina side, led led by the legendary Gigi Radice, um, mm. who obviously had won the the title with Torino back in back in the nineteen seventies. The only title they've won since the the tragedy of Superga. So. You know, this was a team that was 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 thought that was going to probably push on and, and challenge for European places. Um, and the game itself is just—I I recommend anyone to go and watch it on YouTube. It is crazy. Um, <laughs> Fiorentina take the lead early on um, through Bayano, um, go one nil up, and then it's almost just—I think—sparks Milan into life and almost seems to anger Milan. Um, and the reply is emphatic. Um, what I like about this game is the range of you kind of get a, in in one place you get a glimpse of what made Milan so so strong during that era. Um, obviously, this was a Milan side. Everyone remembers the Dutch trio van Basten, Gullit, Rijkaard, mm. but people forget names like Daniele Massaro, who was converted from a midfielder to an attacker under Capello and became serious goals as well. Big games for Milan. Big games. I mean, maybe not prolific, but as he said came up with important goals and consistently he scores twice in this game. Mm. Um, Gianluigi Lentini, look, we, again, we could speak about Lentini and, and the tragedy that was Lentini in terms of the, how he didn't fulfil his talent. And obviously, I think later this season, he had that infamous or tragic car accident, which... Did he which come across had... in this season? I can't remember now. Was it yes, so he joins season? Milan Milan at the beginning of the season. So Milan... Yeah go and add to what was already an incredible squad and bring in, I think, Lentini, uh, Jean-Pierre Papin from Marseille, um, Savicevic, and I think they also might bring in Boban this season. Um, so they, they actually kind of, you know that, that foreigners rule you're talking about, they had six foreigners in the squad, all of whom could have played. 
because you had the Dutch yeah. trio, Savicevic, Boban and Papan. Yeah. Um, so an incredible, just an incredible squad and collection of talent. Lentini was obviously the world record transfer fee at the time. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you get this amalgamation of incredible attacking talent, which which is is displayed in full flow against Fiorentina at the Artemio Franchi. And as I said, after going 1-0 up, Milan then, <laughs> I mean, it's some reaction. They, they, they end the half 4-1 up. Um, Gullit and Lentini also score. But I think the crazy thing about this game when you watch it is it's not an exaggeration to say that this game should have finished about 12-7. The, the amount of chances, the saves... Even Sebastiano Rossi's pulling off some unbelievable saves. Fiorentina should have had six or seven. It's it's actually just a bonkers game, like you said, and it dispels the myth that Serie A was inherently defensive and boring. Milan under Capello were rigid, boring, tactically inflexible. Um, everything, you get everything in this game. And, and like I said, it's just, I guess it, again, like I've said about a number of these, uh, about the other two goals, it's a good, you know, you always hear the the pundits about Premier League. What an advert for Prem, for the Premier League. I mean, what an advert for Serie A this game was. Mm-hmm. As you said, it was shown live. Um, and Milan obviously go on to win the title that year again. Um, they they lose their unbeaten record. Your your mate Faustino Aspria at San Siro scoring an unbelievable free kick for Parma. This was the kind of beginning of the Parma glory days as well. Mm. Um, and the Nevio Scalo brings them up. Um, Milan win the title, and quite incredibly, as as we'll maybe just touch upon now, Fiorentina end up getting relegated, um, <laughs> having changed their manager four times over the course of the season. And on the last day, although they dispatch Foggia 6-2 on the last day in Florence, they end up, I think, on level points with Brescia and Udinese, have a mm. better goal difference than both of them, but lost, lose out to both of them on head-to-head. Um, it's so crazy. It, it was a crazy season. But again, just from context before that, about Fiorentina, the games before they played Milan, and I think this Milan game had a fundamental effect, I think, on, on their season as a whole, because clearly it, it um, devastated confidence. they drawn to Genoa at home, OK? Drawn to Lazio away, a very good Lazio side, 2-all. Beaten Ancona 7-1. And drawn <laughs> to Inter away, 2-all. So, this is a team going in the right They and lost until they yeah. played Milan and, and played some very good sides. So, it was quite incredible, really, the demise of Fiorentina after that game, with, its, with a squad so talented to be relegated, um, was, was one of the stories of the season. It was, especially when you look at it, Batistuta scored 16 goals that season in a Serie A, which wasn't known for many people scoring anywhere near 20. Mm. You know, and you, like I said before, you know, you look at that squad with the likes of Effenberg, who just come from Bayern Munich. I'm not sure if they won the title that season. Laudrup just won the Euros. But it was a weird season as well, because I was remember, and I know we've talked about this previously, Luca, that the fans really fell out with certain players there. Uh, and especially the, the Laudrup and Effenberg. Obviously, we know Effenberg's a controversial character. And he did even stay with them in Serie B. I know Laudrup did not. And Batistuta did as well. But it was a really fractious... I, I really agree with what you're saying about that game, sort of sending what looked like a team going in the right direction into sort of a nosedive in a way. Because mm, mm. there's a lot of fraction... Uh, sorry, a lot of um, unrest within the squad. Uh, you know, in the end, I think... Uh, I think Laudrup and uh, Effenberg end up staying in a hotel and the wives go back and it's all a bit, all a bit messy at one point. And uh, you, you look at it now and it's, it's quite unbelievable because when you, you look at the, um, the talent that was in City A that season, OK, you can say there's a, there wasn't a lot of teams with, there weren't many weak teams in there. No. Uh, we were talking before, weren't we, about the, the you know, the, you look at the strikers who, some of the names in that season, the top top scorers list, it's, it's oh. obscene. Yeah, it's, it's obscene. obscene. Signori scores 26 goals for Lazio that season and, and don't Lazio only finish in fifth place? Yeah. yeah um, which is frightening when you've got a striker who scored 26 goals. But you, you take some of the, 
I mean, going, we're going a little off track here, but go back to Fiorentina in a second. But when just it's worth talking about this that 1993 season, and this is why that Milan side was also so incredible. I'm going to take some of the weaker teams, as you would call it. But Abel Balbo at Udinese scores 21 goals. Mm. <laughs> Maurizio Gans mm. gets 14 at Atalanta. Even when you look down the list and you're looking at the likes of, um, you know, well, you talk about Fiorentina. You know, you've got, we so mentioned um, Batistita getting 16. Uh, Bayano gets uh, gets 10. And Genoa, Scaravi, I mean, remember him? Yeah, yeah. These are all players, when you talk about Raditroy and Scaravi, who featured and been exceptional at the World Cup only a couple of years earlier. Mm. Um, so you can understand in one way why Fiorentina, once you went in the nosedive in this season, it's because you're coming up against good teams every single week. And mm, it's mm. even makes more impressive is how Milan went on to just knock these teams out of the park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think what that game demonstrated was Milan's firepower, really, and that and that strength in depth. Um, you know, you see Gullit and some of the clips of him running with the ball or breaking into the box, um, scoring all types of goals over that season. Mm. Um, Van Basten and the, the, the elegance with which he he not only finished and scored goals, but linked up play and provided for others. Um, Rijkaard, of course, Lentini, Papan often being able to come off the bench and score goals. I mean, That's... Papan's considered somewhat of a flop at Milan, but that season he scores 13 goals, the same amount as Marco van Basten. So a massive contribution. That's to... really interesting you mention that because when I look back in my, in my memories, in my head, uh, and you talk about um, that, that Milan side, I always thought, even till about 10 years ago, I kept thinking Papam was incredible. It's probably when we were doing some research for one of the articles on the Gentleman Ultra. And I kept thinking, you know, this guy was incredible. And then it came about that, hold on a minute, this guy is actually a bit of a flop. Mm, and mm, he's been mm. When I look back, I think the reason I hold him in such high regard is not because of the amount of goals he scored, but it's the, the, the type of goals he scores. I think some unbelievable game, goals. It's like an overhead kick in the Champions League. I think it's can't remember who it's against now, but yeah, you go back and it's yeah, quite incredible. Yeah, I think he scores. I think the next game is that Milan five three against Lazio, which again I'd recommend anyone to go on YouTube and watch. Um, Fuzer scores an incredible goal for Lazio. We're talking about incredible long range strikes. Um, Diego Fuzer was the master of the, the long range thunderbolt. Scores an incredible goal, but I think Papan. May score a, a very good volley in that game, or or we maybe love to keep. But anyway, again, just just the, the the level at which these players were operating at during that era, um, and again, you think that Milan were leaking goals left, right, and centre um, with the defence of Baresi, Maldini, Tassotti, Costa Corta. Um, it's quite incredible, really. Uh, as you said, in that in that. First opening six games, they concede four against Pescara, three against Fiorentina, and three against Lazio. It's um, worth saying in, in, in defence of Milan, which is not something I often would say, they go on to finish that season. They only concede 32 all seasons. Well, I say only 32, but they concede 32, which is supposed to that Milan side, uh, maybe a lot. Because, I mean, if you go back, you know, the season before, where was that the unbeaten season, wasn't it? Yes, they, the season they, before was. Yeah. They only concede 21. So it's more for Milan, but when we talked about the quality of strikers in that, that, that you know in that league at the time, it's not surprising that like Fiorentina obviously that season conceded fifty three, and the likes of Pescara at the poor Pescara at the bottom conceded seventy five. You know, mm, so mm. I think it just is, goes down to say it's a testament of the, the strikers in that league. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. The amount of you know it was just uh, an incredible array of talent um, during mm. that era that was that was coming into Serie A and being produced within the ranks of with the Italian team because again the Italian the Italian forwards that were being produced and scoring goals um, I think Viali joins joins Juventus that season obviously goes on to become part of that that incredible lippy Juventus side um, who break Milan's hegemony if you like over, over Serie A um, Mancini scoring goals for Sampdoria at the time Roberto Baggio scoring goals for Juventus he scores an mm. incredible goal during that season when Juve beat Milan 3-1 at San Siro um, yeah it, I mean like you said the, the 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 level of 
players and the not just the level, but like you say, it was the number of different options that teams had um, across the teams from top to bottom um, was incredible. Yeah, it absolutely was. And facing all those strikers um, in that, that very season, I don't think he, I'm not sure if he actually played much in that season, is uh, the man who, if you could choose anyone to watch all of these games with, um, he was making his debut for um, for, for Lazio. Yeah, I think it was the season after he actually makes his, but he's definitely playing in the team at the time. I think he may have only been famous uh, the season afterwards for breaking Gascoigne's leg. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but tell me, tell everyone who this is, and, and and tell us why that this man would be your choice. Yeah, it's it's Alessandro Nesta, um, the man uh, who, well, he's the main reason why I wore number thirteen on the back of my shirt as a as a kid playing football. Why thirteen became one of my lucky numbers. Um, for me, look, we could again. It's a whole whole other podcast talking about Italian defenders and especially Italian <laughs> central defenders and the and the production line throughout the history of Italian football. But for me. And this is this is obviously this is obviously very much based on the fact that I grew up during the nineties and then and then and then the two thousands. Um, Nesta was the archetypal Italian defender in the sense of yes, first and foremost, he was a fantastic defender, one on one reading of the game, um, his ability to make defending look easy and also like an art form, um, because I think, you know, the joke is no one really wants to play in defence when they're younger or, you know, who wants to be the rugged centre-half? It's not always the most glamorous role, but I think Italian defenders like Nesta, like Maldini, like Cannavaro, um, and before them, Baresi, uh, I wouldn't say Gentile was elegant, um, or I wouldn't say Shirea, maybe more so, but these Italian defenders made made defending an art form and a skill that that required hours of training and required studying the game really, knowing knowing yeah. the kind of the forwards you were playing against, knowing their movements, positionally knowing how to essentially um, to essentially put out any potential threats and, and and attacks before they even really developed. I think obviously the famous quotes from Maldini saying. You know, if I've if I've had to go to ground or make a tackle, I've already made a mistake because I'm putting yeah. my, myself in a situation where I could commit a foul or I could get beaten one on one. Now these defenders were all fantastic one on one defenders, and you see clips of Nesta and his slide tackles, and um, when he is defending one on one, he's fantastic. I think later in his career, there's a famous clip of him at the Camp Nou tracking down Messi and putting in an incredible slide tackle in the box, which looks for all the world as if he's going to commit a foul um, but manages to to take the ball or win the ball from Messi and, and Messi is about to kind of appeal for a penalty <laughs> until he realises it was actually an incredible incredible piece of defending and tackle but yeah I think obviously Nesta as you said making his debut very young at Lazio becoming an integral part of, of the Lazio team we discussed which includes obviously Mancini um, and Mancini's goal earlier winning the Scudetto with Lazio, um, then moving to Milan, winning Champions Leagues, winning um, titles, the World Cup, albeit he was he was injured throughout the majority of the tournament. I think he was hugely mm, unfortunate with injuries. Had he not had such bad luck with injuries, I, I genuinely believe um, Italy would mm-hmm. have won more on the international stage because you think of some of the, the times when he got injured during international tournaments I think Euro 2000 was one where he misses a lot of the tournament um, I think he he is considered one of the greatest Italian defenders or, or defenders of all time period but I think were it not for the injuries he would have won and achieved even more um, but for me it was just the way the style and the way in which he defended which which captured my imagination because it was done with such, with such grace and such elegance <laughs> and efficiency. Like when we talk about Italian defenders, it's brutal efficiency sometimes as well. He knew the dark arts. He knew how to make life difficult for some of the best attackers in, in Serie A. And he was playing against the best attackers in Europe. Um, and, and also he had the ability to play with the ball. 
Um, you know, he was one of those, like many Italian defenders, who who would be the one who would be initiating attacks and was comfortable on the ball, would carry the ball out. Um, so equally as good in possession no, as out of possession. Okay, I can't really add to that in the sense that you captured it perfectly. I just, from a personal note, you know, I remember him a lot uh, when he first started out at Lazio. I think probably Nesta's got one of my favourite ever facts with uh, the breakup of that Lazio side. Is that obviously when he moved to, to Milan, he had a backlog in his wages. And so uh, the, the Lazio, uh, sorry, Lazio didn't know what to do about this and obviously wanted to let him go. And this two million euros that he'd, uh, you know, was, was, was owed, he got given it as shares in the club. And uh, I always wonder, with his dad being a Lazio fan, I always wonder if he's still got those or if he's, uh, <laughs> what he's done, how his uh, shares in Lazio have gone from there. But no, yeah. yeah, or whether they were they were liquidated <laughs> post crash <laughs> after that, <laughs> after that yeah, fiasco and no, saga, yeah. Um, no, but it's it's just the fact of uh, for me, I think you know you, when you you name those iconic Italian defenders, it he's, he's just right up there. And I think that you know when any team, you know, if you back in, especially when he was at Milan and the, the players you had then, any team you're talking before about. Alex Ferguson, when he talked about the San Siro and the effects, I mean, you go in, if you were going to San Siro at that time and you're lining up and you're looking over and you've got people like Maldini and Nesta, you just, I don't know, the, the feeling that teams must have had, you know, people say you can get beaten in the tunnel and I just think that he's one of the players that would have certainly made mm-hmm. you think that. I mean, incredible career. Oh, 100%. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah incredible career. I think, like you said, he makes his debut in 1994. Um, the longevity of his career um, because he covers again essentially three three decades um, he bows out obviously with a, with a Serie A mm. title with Milan as well um, which people tend to forget the last time that Milan won a, a Scudetto under Allegri um, still plays a really important part in that in that season um, I think he they conceded I think him and Thiago Silva, which, by the way, is another unbelievable defensive partnership. Milan have had some unbelievable defensive partnerships. I think Baresi dubbed Thiago Silva as, as his successor at one point when Silva was playing at Milan. So if you imagine he was playing next to Nesta, um, and I think in that season, Milan only conceded 24 goals in 38 yeah. games under Allegri when, when, when they last won the Serie A title. So... Again, it just shows his, his longevity, his consistency. Obviously, he was hampered by injuries. Yes, we know that. But, um, you know, he did, he, he did it at every level. And, and in terms of, yeah, watching, get, watching the games that I've chosen and the goals that I've chosen um, with him on a desert island, I think we, we'd have plenty to speak about because obviously you're talking about one of the greatest Milan teams um, ever under Capello. Mancini, who he played with at Lazio and saw that goal firsthand. And obviously, he was part of the the, the uh, 3-0 win um, for Milan against Man United where Kaka scores. So I could really pick his brains about um, those goals, those teams, those moments and also just allow him to give me a uh, masterclass in, in defending, if you like. And 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 I, yeah, like I said, he was an inspiration for me. Obviously, never got anywhere near replicating his levels, but I wore his number on the back of my shirt and I even bought, I think, the boots he used to wear, the Asics Tigreals, to match, to try and to try and channel as much in you know, Alessandro Nesta as I could on the football pitch. Um, so, yeah, no, one, one of my all-time favourite players and, and, and just a, a legend. No, that's, really, that's, I've, got, I, I've got a question for him. If, uh, if you're on the desert island with him, he's, we might be seeing him soon uh, with Frosinone because obviously he's uh, head coach of... Uh, in now uh, the, the third yep. in Serie B. But I've got this, I was looking at this before, and Frosinone, um, funnily enough, they're seven games in and they've only conceded two goals, which is quite amusing when you just talked about Nesta, that he's really bringing, you know, that, that defensive element uh, to, to Frosinone. But guess who they conceded those two goals against? And it was only the other weekend. There's something going oh, on be, there. Is it Monza? <laughs> But... Yeah, 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 yeah. Berlusconi just picks up the phone. <laughs> Berlusconi and KPB as well against his old teammate. <laughs> Do me a favour. Yeah, something... yeah, it's something true. It's right qu- <laughs> questions, have... questions have got to be asked there. He's doing his old mate a bit That's of a favour, I think. 
Um, but yeah, no, I've no doubt he, you know, he's still young in terms of his, his managerial mm. career. Started at Miami FC, had a season at Perugia, but I've no doubt that. Well, like it's interesting, isn't it? Like many of that Milan team, um, yeah. that we discussed, um, that he will have a successful, a successful coaching career. Um, and it's, a, it's an incredible school of football, really, um, Milanello in, in general, in terms of you look at the players they've produced who have then gone on to be coaches, going back to your likes well, of Pello. The um, people who come through and, and they're actually lost on, on the, you know, who've gone to be coaches even, he just is incredible in itself. You know, it's uh, even when you look to the likes, not just the famous ones, like, oh, yeah. we know Pello yeah. is now Juventus, but I know we're not going to have time really to talk about this, but we certainly will on another podcast, but we're going to talk about Siena. But uh, Alberto Giladino, you know, coach of Siena now. It's uh, this... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who we went bankrupt again, <laughs> I, I believe, <laughs> and we had to start again in Serie D. So uh, yeah, we were going to speak a bit about them. But when I, I think it was six or seven years ago, I spent a season watching them in Serie D after they became Robo Siena and, and, and went bankrupt. So they've started that <laughs> cycle all over again. So good luck to all my Senezi <laughs> friends who are having to go through the the joys of watching the regional games against um, Podgy Bonsi <laughs> we'll definitely, and the like We'll definitely come back and talk about that one, one of the, one of the tales of the peninsula <laughs> that we'll start doing. So, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Well, listen, Luke, for sure. that's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed that. I could have carried on for another two hours, but obviously we're going to have to let you go. So thank you so much. Uh, just for anyone out there, anyone who wants to follow you, just where can they all find you and what we do? Yeah, no, thanks, Richard. Really enjoyed that. Um, it makes me want to whack out that, that video it's tape again in the 92 93 season. Um, uh, shout out to Ross Howard, some really good work there. All of the ones on that season, just the Milan one itself and the thing, go onto YouTube, you can get it. Fantastic, fantastic. I'll be checking that out. Um, that's my evening watching sorted. And yeah, on, on you can find me on Twitter, um, Luca Hodges Ramon or LH underscore Ramon 25 and then obviously yeah, follow the, the Gentleman Ultra um, plenty of content going out at the moment and and yeah really enjoyed you know, your look back at um, that famous Francesco Totti goal um, <laughs> against against your lot Inter with Wayne <laughs> on YouTube so yeah no m- many more nostalgic moments being celebrated over the course of the yeah, next yeah we'll be getting you on that soon so start sure. thinking of the goals <laughs> Not have to be different from the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and we're not having any more Inter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we won't. We won't. <laughs> struggle. See what's going to happen. Struggle. We're all going to be against Inter because I've made a commitment to wear only because I've made a commitment to wear <laughs> the football top of uh, one of the teams playing. So I'm either going to have to go through my entire Inter selection or uh, start wearing other kits. Right. Well, Luca, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much, and uh, that's ciao for now. <laughs>